So, verses 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever you do and whatever they offer is defiled. Verses 15. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before. One stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of twenty measures, there was only ten. When anyone went to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there was only twenty. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So from this day on, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. But from this day on, I will bless you. I will bless you. So, it's a real privilege to be here this morning, this afternoon, this evening. That's what happens when you've got twins and you hardly sleep. <laughs> you, <laughs> you lose your faculties. So, I love the Old Testament. It's absolutely fantastic. In fact, when I started my curacy at St. Peter's Church, I asked that my first five sermons at church would be out of the Old Testament, a naive curate trying to prove my point. And I wanted to go to the darkest passages in the Bible. Do you know those passages that we don't really like to read? Those passages that depict God as a monster. The terror text. I wanted to get my teeth right and about them. Because they're there for a reason. And I would say that my favourite passage in the whole Bible was the book of Amos. A bit similar to Haggai in the sense that it was a minor prophet who was speaking to the nation of Israel. And so we come to Haggai. And on a first reading of this book, it seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? So I'm going to offer some thoughts. And if the shoe fits, wear it. Don't take what I say as gospel truth. Take it with you. Analyse it. Critique it. And see what God is saying to you through it. Chew it over in your head. And I'm trusting that the Lord will say new to us this evening. So it is really important to understand something of the history behind the Bible. Um, or the context behind the Bible. And as a Bible college student, we were taught to understand the world behind the text. We were told to understand the world of the text. And then we were, only then were we asked to say, well, how does this apply to our life? And so the world of Haggai was a very strange world. And right enough, as my man said, that the Israelites, they had been dragged off into Babylon because they had forgot the central calling that God had put on their life. You see, God raised up a people to reflect His glory, to reflect His love. 
the nations surrounding Israel were totally corrupt to the degree that they would even sacrifice their own children. That's how dark it was. So God says, show them something of me. And the people of Israel forgot that. So God removed his protection. And the Babylonians came in and dragged them off into exile. But here we have them coming back to the homeland. And they've been told to, they've been told to rebuild the temple. And there's pressures. The surrounding nations are beginning to, the, the curtains are beginning to twitch, if you know what I mean. They're beginning to look at Israel, beginning to rebuild their lives. And something happens and they begin to become a wee bit apathetic, a wee bit lethargic. And the, the, the temple building stops. So this is the surrounding that, that, that Haggai is speaking into. And Israel at this time, they had civic leaders had, had, had grown up and some religious leaders had come back in. But they hadn't seen a prophet for a very long time. And so the nation of Israel had been told to rebuild the temple. They'd be dragged off because they ignored the call of God. And they were becoming complacent again. And the prophet comes to warn them. A defiled nation. And at that moment in time, they weren't actually defiled. Do you think the prophet was reflecting back to how bad it really got in Israel when they, they started to build up and they got, they got powerful. Do you know, they were, they were, they came out in the exodus, didn't they? And then the persecuted become the persecutors. They started to accumulate wealth and they became fat. The Old Testament talks about them becoming fat and filthy and rich. Talking about how that speaks into a modern context. Oh my goodness. And so, this could happen again. And the prophet comes. So that's a wee bit about the world behind the text. But what about the world of this text? Haggai is in two sections. And in those two sections there's four oracles. And one's been read to us. And it's the third oracle. And it's set in the context of the temple. And if we understand anything about the Jewish culture and the temple, the temple represented the presence of God. See, this God was different. Do you know, we, we have some strange concepts of God becomes a figment of our imagination. Something up there that's a bit detached from the reality of lived life. That's the way the ancient world thought of God. But this God was different. The presence of God would come into the midst to people. He would come to people right in to the mess and the madness. And so the, the temple represented that. But it also represented the glory of God. The glory of God. In this world of the text, we see the prophet talking about um, it's, it's some really bizarre language, isn't it? If you read that as a modern reader, do you know about touching dead bodies and all that? It's a bit heebie-jeebie, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like, but you, if you were to read that to somebody, they would be like, why do you want to read a book like that? It's just, it doesn't make sense. But when you understand what it's, what it's a metaphor of, what it's a type of, what it's representing, God's people had become unclean. Unclean in the sense that, that um, they were rubbing shoulders with the culture that they were surrounded by. Do you know, they were called to be set apart. They were called to be different. They were called to show the world a different way to live. Where you loved your neighbour. 
where you loved even yourself. Oh my goodness. Loving yourself. So they were called to be distinct, but they were getting caught up in the world's practices. And so God had called them to be set apart. But here they were, becoming defiled and unclean. So it's a picture of being unclean. Ritual purity was a big thing in Old Testament times. And it's basically, this is basically a metaphor for how sin corrupts us at every single level. Not just at an individual level. Don't mind me saying it, but there's two guys here tonight. Between us, there's probably about 60 years of drug addiction and criminality. No, sin had totally corrupted our life, but it didn't start with us. It started further back, and it, it found its way into our family systems. Do you know, it's not just people that are corrupted by sin, it's the system of the world that we live in. And this is what the prophet's referring back to in terms of being unclean. You have to be different. You have to be distinct. You don't be the same as them. They don't reflect me and my pure love. And then we have this picture of judgment. And we often avoid it. We don't want to think about it. What is it about judgment that really, really... (laughs) Once you say you don't think about it. Because it's in the Bible. Do you know? And, and so how do we understand the judgment of God? And do you know, often we think that judgment and love are mutually exclusive. But you see, God's judgment is his love. Well, what do you mean when you talk about that, Darren? Well, you see, if I discipline my child, what is my purpose? What is my goal? When I'm raising my child, what is my ultimate goal? My ultimate goal is to be teach him how to live. If I discipline him, I'm not casting him out. I might send him to his room. Her room. My son's 24 now. I probably wouldn't send him to his room. But you know what I'm talking about. I send him to his room for four hours. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't casting him out. It was restorative justice. That's basically what it was. So when we understand the judgment of God, you see, God's purpose to judge is so that people would come back to him. It's in the passage, isn't it? I'll just read it. He judges them so that they'll come back. I can't even find the passage now. But it doesn't matter. You get my point. Judgment is there because it's there to bring people back to God. And in this passage, we have these images of the Jewish culture. We have the image of the olive tree. We have the image of the vine. These are images of fruitfulness, of life, of God's blessing. And what we find in the passage is, God is saying, you never received any of that because I, I judged you and you never come back to me. And because you never come back to me, I'm going to be... No, God is a gentleman. When God judges us, it doesn't force us to come back into a relationship with him. He removes his protection and says, well, go your own way. On you go. It's the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? If we take it into a modern context in, in, in Roman-occupied um, Jerusalem. Do you know, the son wants everything. And his dad's like, ah, on you go. He's not going to force him to stay in the father's household. But he waits for him. And that's the kind of God that we're talking about here. And that's the context of this passage. 
So Haggai comes to the people of Israel and he says, remember what it was like. Remember how corrupt you became. Remember how fat you became. Remember how you forgot the things of God. You were blessed to be a blessing to the nations. Now you're just copying them. And, and, and he comes along and reminds them about the judgment because it's about grace. And then I'll bless you. So that's quite a wee bit about that passage and the context behind it. Uh, but how do we bring that into a modern context? So if we think about our world and the parallel between our world and the Jewish world, we are a world that's surrounded and controlled by superpowers. This is the world of the Jews. We are surrounded by a world that's, that's totally moving in the opposite direction from God. And I'm not just talking about morally. We could argue that it's a moral, a moral thing. But it's bigger than that. For me, it's an ethical thing. Because ethics are different from morality. When you consider the injustice in our world, and God calls us as the church to reflect a different world. <laughs> Behold, he wants to do a new thing. And he calls the church to be in the world, not to be of it, to be in it. And we build our buildings, and we build our empires, and we build our families. And so often, that's what it becomes about. And all this stuff is happening round about us. And we carry on with our lives. We carry on doing church. And God loves us doing church. But if church becomes only about doing church, and know about the mission of God that means that we've got to go into the world and embody the gospel so that the surrounding culture, every single human being would see something of the heart of God. Imagine, let's just imagine that we, we really took God up on that, that offer. Imagine we really did it. Imagine what our world would be like. Do you know, what are the parallels between our context and the ancient world? Well, they were a world, if we take it into Jesus' time, that came right through the Old Testament. They kept becoming, when they got power, it all went pear-shaped. And you could say that the church has had too much power. And I'm not talking about kingdom power. I'm talking about the power of the world. Influence in the world. And the church, over the course of history, has always done a lot better when it's been on the margins. In fact, the, the, the image that's used for witness in the New Testament is the image of a hammer when it hits something and it explodes and scatters. That's the, that's the word witness. And so when the church is shattered and broken and vulnerable and weak, only then is God's power manifested because it's an upside down kind of thing. When, we, when we're, we're skint, when we've got no money to put on amazing services, when we've got no money to pay our pastors, when it becomes about the church doing the church's work and we don't become dependent upon religious leaders to lead the movement of God. We live in a world that's full of divided loyalties. And Jesus comes along, and this is the most amazing thing, because Jesus comes along into a context where the superpower of the day was Rome. And Caesar thought he was God. And Jesus comes along and says, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, love your enemy. See, that's a different kind of power. And Jesus comes along and says, give your power away. Empty yourself on the behalf of another human being. (laughs) If you lose your life, you'll find it. And so Jesus comes into a culture that had forgot again what God had said. Blessed to be a blessing. And he comes into that culture and he shows us how to do it all over again. And we've forgotten. I forget daily. And I'm, I'm constantly being reminded by God that this is not about... It's not even about the church. It's not even about me. This is about God's kingdom being manifest in the world and we become apathetic and lethargic and we forget to build that kingdom and God judges us but he doesn't judge us so that we can be squashed and feel guilty and ashamed he judges us because his judgment is laced with grace and grace is always the last word mercy triumphs over judgment the New Testament prophet Micah I think says and so this evening there's a word of judgment for us do you know what I mean? If we've become complacent, there's a word of judgment for us. Are you in or are you out? But not only that, and this is great, I, did a, 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 I wrote an essay in the book of Revelation at, at Bible College, and the title of my, my, my essay was this. Um, is the book of Revelation to um, comfort the disturbed or to disturb the comfortable? And my conclusion was, you see if we're comfortable we need to be disturbed because that's the kingdom of God if we're disturbed then the word for you tonight and I'm disturbed all the time all the time I'm disturbed God God comes along and says there's grace for you there's healing for you there's hope and so we come here tonight we might be needing disturbed and God's disturbing us but we might need some comfort and there's always grace for us so I love secular music God speaks to me through secular music a lot more than he does through Christian music I might get any trouble for that in the church but you know I think God is speaking God just doesn't just speak through the Bible. He speaks through the tradition of the church. He speaks through culture. Jesus says, be aware of the signs of the times. And secular music for me is a medium that God really speaks through. And so we're going to listen to a song. Uh, and uh, it's not going to be an altar call or anything, but if, um, if you want to do business with God, this song is a song where we can come to God um, to say sorry. Because we could, we've all got things to say sorry for. Do you know what I mean? We're, we're, we're human, we're broken. Do you know what I mean? It's a song to say sorry, but it's also a song to pick something back up. Do you know when you, when, when you give something to God, we often go away empty-handed, don't we? But when we come to God, God wants to give us something. And it might be peace. It might be a gift a gift that you've forgotten about so that you can help God build his temple in this world and in your heart 
Jou nou vir die is vir jou. Amen.